Welcome to the Anyona Podcast. On this show, we cover everything you need to know from early childhood development and education to parenting tips and much more. Now over to our hosts, Tracy and Zoe. Go on, Biggie, and welcome to an early childhood journey today. Thank you for joining us on our episode today. I would like to acknowledge the custodians of the land that we are gathered on today, which are the Turrbal and Yagura people. Now, today I'm very excited to let you know that we have a special guest person on our podcast today. Claire is not only a mother here at Adiona, but she is also a highly qualified and professional speech pathologist. So welcome, Claire. Hi, Zoe. How are you? Great. So, Claire, maybe um, we could start by just talking a little bit about you and your background and who you work with. Sure. So I actually work in disability. So I have worked as a speech pathologist for 12 years and I started off working in the hospital down at Logan and Gold Coast. And I've done some work at different private practices and big disability service providers. So I've worked at Montrose, which is one of the biggest disability service providers in Queensland. Um, And currently I work at Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus Queensland. And I also do some private practice. Fantastic. And um, will we give you some more information about Claire's private practice just at the end? Yeah. <laughs> Why not a, a plug, That's a shameless plug? <laughs> so speech pathology, what what exactly is speech pathology? Maybe some sure. So we used to obviously be called speech therapists, yeah. but now we're speech pathologists <laughs> because we do assess and diagnose communication, language, speech disorders, we would call them. So speech pathology, it's funny, we always get people who say, oh, good you know, stutter or a lisp or something like that, but it's so much more than that. You know, we see children who are late talkers, who have developmental delay. We see children obviously on the spectrum. We see children who make different speech sound errors. So you probably hear a lot of them down in the bigger rooms downstairs, you know, saying tup for cup and a few little speech sound errors like that. So we get lots of phone calls from parents because lots of those can be quite normal. And so we get see all the speech sound kids. We see stuttering. So lots of fluency issues. Yeah, and then I guess children who have difficulty understanding directions, parents sort of notice that they're giving them a direction, you know, can you put your shoes on and meet me at the door? And they're not able to do that when, you know, these mothers groups that we all join, it's really easy to compare um, all the children. So I guess you go to mothers group and you think, oh, I can see little Johnny doing that, but my my little one isn't. So So often we get lots of calls from parents who are worried about their expressive and receptive language. So we do lots of that as well. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that is really important to point out in that is that speech pathology, well, it's like in the title it says speech, it is about communication. So yes. it's much yeah. deeper. And I also do some AAC and I do the complex feeding caseload as well. So lots of those picky eaters, problem feeders, we call them. So children who love their white food, you know, they're really, they're not happy to try different ranges of foods. So we do all of that as well. So it's quite a, um, a diverse sort of area of things that we're able to do and support families with. Excellent. So Claire, quite often we get questions obviously from families at Adiona and one of the first questions we get as the children move through the centre is, is my child speaking enough? Are they at the right spot in their age bracket? Have they got enough communication skills? And it seems to happen around that one and a half, two-year-old mark. Yeah, and that's a time, I guess, because when you have a baby, you know, you're dying for them to sit up, to eat, to walk. And then once they start walking at that sort of 12 to 15-month phase, then it's all about the communication. You know, they can't communicate. And I guess at that stage too, they start to get a bit frustrated and know themselves a bit more and they can't express what they want. So that's often when we get the calls at sort of 18 months 
Is my child talking enough? Are they, you know, what's the next step? What can I do to support them to communicate more? And I suppose we always say at 18 months they should have about nine words and that's not words that you would hear like mum, dad, cup, car. That's words and word approximations. So your child might say woo-woo for water and I would count that as a word. If they say it consistently and they say it for the same thing, that's a word. So I think lots of parents often call us too because there's so many words that their child's trying to say but they're actually not picking up on exactly what it is. And then, you know, it's really good if you can reinforce those words too. So because they're not getting that acknowledgement that it is a word and a communication attempt, you know, parents haven't noticed that that's a word. So lots of times we do get those 18 months to two years children come in. It's so beautiful to see them because you could actually show the parents they're doing so well, they're saying so much. And then, you know, we can just give a few little things to do um, to try and sort of support them to say, I guess, a more of a range of words or with their communication effort. But yeah, so we always say around the 18 months, you want them to have nine words or um, word approximations. But again, there's such a big bell curve of what's normal. <laughs> so some kids, my little Harry, who's up here in Green Tribe too, he's got about probably 15 words and he's 15 months old. But when Hamish, my second one who came through here, he probably only had about six or seven at 18 months. But again, if you can see that they've got that understanding there and what we'd call that communication intent, mm. if, they've, um, if they're giving you good eye contact, if they're really social little communicators, we probably wouldn't worry so much about the number of words. Mm. You know, but if they've only got one or two words but aren't able to give you eye contact and aren't looking for that interaction and that communication, then we'd be a bit more concerned. So I guess it's about the whole picture. It's not necessarily about the number of words. And I know it's really tricky when you see other kids of similar ages to your kids because it is sort of instinct to compare and think, oh, mine's not saying so much. You know, this one's got 20 words. And I remember in mother's group a mum had a little one, I think she was about three, and she could, like, write her name. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, my boys are not that advanced. <laughs> um, fine motor is still not their area of um, where they excel. But I guess it's important to remember too as a parent, they're all fitting on that curve somewhere and there's a really big range of normal yeah yeah and I guess would it be fair to also look for that comprehension as well as yeah as the definitely burden? and I mean some kids are just quieter especially yeah. <laughs> if they've got bigger families louder siblings even know. adults yeah <laughs> and I think it's really important to remember too you know it's it's only an issue if it's an issue to you yeah. so we see some kids who you know maybe a bit later they're from a very quiet family and it's never been an issue. Uh, but you can see they what they have what we call receptive language that's really good. They're just they're a bit quieter. And that can just be their personality. I'm obviously not one of those people. Um, I love to chat. All my children do too. Our house is very loud. But um, you know, different personality types as well. So keeping that in mind. But yeah, like I said, if you can see that communication intent the social communication, the eye contact and what we'd call making a range of noises as well. So you'd be concerned about an 18-month-old if they hadn't babbled and made sounds. So the first thing we would do with something like that would be, say, have you had a hearing assessment? So often, you know, children who aren't making a lot of noises from that 12 to 18 months, it's a good time to think that's something you can sort of proactively go and do, get a hearing assessment because if you were to call the speech pathologist or even go see your GP, that would be the first thing that they would do, be to recommend a hearing assessment. 
Yeah. Excellent. So I guess moving on to the next question that we always get moving down the line of the progression of the age groups through here is around specific sounds. So parents start to get worried if there is like if their child still has a lisp or um, dropping sounds or... Yeah, so what they're what we call phonological processes. So yep. there's articulation, which is how we make all the sounds and articulate them, and then there's what we call phonological process. So processes. So all children will go through phonological processes. So that's where they'll do what we call fronting. They'll say tup for cup, and you know, ninety percent of children will do that. And there's an age of which they just stop doing that and start saying the normal sound, um, or the sound that's supposed to be in that place. They'll start putting the k at the front of the word, but then. I guess there's some that are sort of what we call more atypical, so leaving off a final consonant or middle consonant. So if you're saying butter for butter and water for water and you're doing that quite consistently in the middle of words and when you have those what we'd call deviant processes so that aren't, so every child won't do that, we'd call them a deviant phonological process and when you see them you find the intelligibility of the speech. So it's more difficult to understand is um, affected. So your educators might be saying to you, oh, I'm only understanding, you might have a four-year-old, maybe 30% of what little Johnny's saying. Um, you know, he's saying a lot and I can see he's really trying, but but I'm not understanding much. So, you know, we would be saying by age four, unfamiliar listeners, so your educators should be understanding 70 to 80 sort of bordering towards that 90%. So if people are having trouble understanding, you know, that's a good time to, again, have a review by the speech pathologist. But a lot of those speech sounders are so a lisp. Any children that you're seeing under the age of five through here, a lisp is um, one of those things that so many children have. Often it's to do with their dentition as well. When their teeth fall out, it will sort of improve on its own. Some of them won't. There's different types of lisps and some of them are more of a concern than others. So I think, um, you know, lisps are quite typical though. There's a few things like the thumb for thumb. That, again, is another process that we would expect to see in a child till they're about six or seven. I'm trying to give some others now. <laughs> um, but there's some really common ones that, you know, lots of children make leaving off initial sounds and final sounds. And especially as they're learning speech, it's just really if it's impacting that intelligibility. And I guess if you're noticing that lots of the children that they're playing with aren't sort of making that error. A good thing to do too is if you notice, say, they're saying tup for cup, sorry, so they're putting it at the start. If you can hear them making a k, but in other words, so often they'll start doing it at the end, so they might be able to say tick and they can do the k at the end. So that can be a good little rule of thumb. Oh, they're saying it at the end of words. So give them another few months and hopefully because they've got that k sound in what we call another word position, they should usually, it will start to sort of move to the generalised to other word positions. Yeah. Um, they've got the capacity to make Yeah, the capacity to articulate yeah. that yeah. sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, all of a the sudden they're not going to wake up one day and just be able to say all the sounds. It's, you know, a process of them learning, putting them together, learning the motor plans. Yeah, so it, it takes time for their speech to become clear and adult-like. But then there are some children who do speak like, like adults from age three, um, but they're definitely not not you know, not the majority. Yeah. 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 So I guess one of the other things that we sometimes come across here at the centre and parents all often wonder if it's a habit or if it's an actual issue that their child has is if they have a stutter. 
Yes. Yep. Stuttering. Yeah. yeah. Because sometimes as, um, especially when in this age group, I think because they're just learning to talk and sometimes it's not fluid yet. So Yeah. And we often say, I mean, there's different types of stutters and I will tell you the times to be when you'd be concerned about a stutter. But yep. most stutters, all children will actually go through a phase of disfluency. Mm-hmm. And usually it's at a period of time when they're going through what we call a language acquisition period. So they're developing a lot of language and they just need that they're just trying to get so much out and it's really tricky. So you hear them, I, 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 and those, you know, those, especially those initial word repetitions, sometimes sound repetitions. And what we would say is if you're hearing that for a period of a few weeks or even six or eight weeks, and then you're not noticing it so much. So a, a typical developmental stutter will come and go, it'll come and go. You would probably only see a speech pathologist if you the parents were very concerned so if if they were very concerned if it had been going for longer than six months so a period of six months you would see a speech pathologist straight away if your child had what we'd call secondary behaviors so if you're noticing the stutter and it seems like they've got a lot of tension in their neck or it's coming with an eye blink any kind of sounds like instead of sort of replacing the sounds or any kind of what we call a secondary behaviour, mm-hmm. then it would be really important to, to get that checked by a speech pathologist. But a lot of stuttering is really normal, but it can be quite frustrating too for parents when your little one comes home from daycare and they're dying to tell you something or you're in a rush downstairs doing lunches, what would you like? I, 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 I. And, you know, it's really important though to just give them, if you can, that time to finish, not to interject, let them get through it. And remember it is a phase like so many things with kids is a phase yeah and I guess that's one of the other things that families quite often ask us is should they correct children in sorry with sounds yeah Yeah. so with sounds there's lots of different ways to um to correct a sound so if your child says you know that's a pish instead of Mm -hmm. that's a fish I would always say to my boys you meant to say the sound that's a fish Great talking, but you wouldn't repeat their error. So you wouldn't say, it's not a pish, it's a fish, because then you've reinforced the error. So, and as well, I wouldn't expect them to repeat that. So depending on their age and and where they were at, you know, some kids get really self-conscious with things and their, their personality type. So some kids, it would be enough to just say, fish, great, that's a fish, but not have any expectations on them to say fish. And you're just giving them the correct model back to reinforce that but then others you know you could say sweetie fish you meant to say the sound can you say the sound fish let's say it together but again depending on their personality type because the last thing you want to do is make them feel really anxious about their speech and like there's something wrong especially when like I said so many of those errors are age appropriate Mm. but as a parent I think it's just really important to give clear models of what what the sound should be not necessarily pointing out the error but fish starts with a sound you know, you wouldn't even need to say, oh, you said the wrong sound. You could just say, that's a fish. It starts with a f- sound. Good job. I love that you told me that was a fish. I've been also, that kind of just reminded me, I've been reading articles recently about how children acquire speech sound recognition, like in that first 12 months of their life. And if they don't hear certain sounds and they're not exposed to them, for example, from different languages. Different languages. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Then it's much harder. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's much harder for them to pick up. So Mm. I guess that highlights the importance of speaking to your children a lot. Yeah, always speaking. And we always say like, it's never too early Mm. to read books to them. Like it's funny. Harry just destroys books at them. He has no <laughs> respect for books and it drives me insane because the older two were always great with books. 
but even from a little age, like he knows what to do with a book. So sometimes we'll get parents with, you know, a nine or 10 month old and they'll say, should I be reading them books? And I'm like, yes. And they say, but they can't really attend to them. But the thing is, they'll never learn to attend to them unless they see them every day. They know how to turn the pages. It's really important from, you know, as early as possible to just get them in the habit of reading books, pointing to things, showing them different um, things. And I guess reading a book opens up new language that they don't hear, you know, just hanging around the house or or going about your daily business with you. You know, you think you probably don't talk about zebras, lions and, (laughs) you know, baboons or different things on a daily basis. But um, we do here. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you do here. Whereas, you know, in a book, it can really help just expand their imagination and, and lots of different things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Claire, before we um, started this, we were just chatting about what we talk about. And one of the things you mentioned, and I thought this would probably be really interesting to families, was about fussy eaters and how that plays a role in your job. Yeah, so um, we see lots of fussy eaters. It's a really um, big thing, you know, children who just love their white food. They don't like different textured foods. And I guess it's it's lots of different reasons for for why that happens and it can be so stressful as a parent if you're worried about your child getting adequate nutrition or eating the different food groups or or even their weight you know if they're a little bit underweight you know and that's a a time when you know it, it can be very stressful especially if your child has you know complex medical needs or any other anything going on but we do see lots of yeah lots of children who you know it's quite a tug of war and it becomes a really stressful time meal times and that can be really hard for parents but then it's funny because I'm sure you have the ones who come here and then just eat everything here in a different environment and everyone else is eating and that can be very frustrating (laughs) to parents but I think a couple of little things that are important to remember is it's never a good idea to force a child to eat anything they don't want to as a parent it's your job to provide options to your child and it's your child's job to decide how much and what they want to eat and that can be so frustrating when you've spent half an hour preparing something beautiful for them and they want to throw it on the ground (laughs) you know but I think too always keeping really positive self you know talk around meal times that's yummy I love the way that tastes and and talking about the food not using negative words you know oh we don't like that or you don't like that you know oh that's green and talking about the properties of the food oh it tastes like it's got little bits in it Mm, it's what we call broccoli it's yummy would you like to try it and if they don't want to that's okay because we say children need to be exposed to food you know, a number of times before they can actually decide if they like them or don't like them. So, you know, you might give them a piece of broccoli one night and they don't like it. But then you might present it 10 times and after the 10th time they think, that funny-looking food hasn't hurt me yet. <laughs> I might give it a go. Whereas if on the first night you've tried it, you've tried to force it into their mouth, you've automatically made them feel anxious about the broccoli. So I think it's really important to just, yeah, introduce foods, keep them on the plate. Maybe they'll warm up to them. And you know what? Not everyone likes broccoli. (laughs) I think that's important to remember too. Not every child will eat everything, even the best eaters. (laughs) I actually saw an ad by uh, one of the big supermarket chains. I can't remember which one now. But um, it it showed, um, you know, five blueberries and five, like, you know, salty crackers. And it was saying, you know, a blueberry can be squishy and bitter and sweet and yeah. mushy and whereas, you know, a cracker is the same every single time and that's, and why, that's children... Too, why children <laughs> like it because it's the predictability yeah. of it. You know, you think of how 
they start off and it's that, you know, the white breast milk yeah. and it's very comforting and even when they hold a bottle, they hold it at the midline. It's so comforting. And then all of a the sudden they're presented with these colours and obviously everyone has different visual preferences and sensory preferences. Yeah. So for some children that blueberry can be really overwhelming. Yeah. You know, and a white cracker just feels so much safer. Um, I, I love yeah. a, a plain cigar, so I'm not one to, yeah. to judge. Good salty cracker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's also important why you expose them multiple times because they might get to the different bitter people, one the I've first got a great um, story. My little Hamish, so he's our middle child, he's always been a precious petal. Zoe would know this. He cried every day for a year when he came here. Um, he has improved now in school. And Hamish, the first night we served him a burger, he, he's always been a little bit hit and miss and he still is with meals. Um, and we made a burger. The whole family was having burgers. We, we'd moved to Perth actually and I said, you know, he's going to have a burger. There was a few white chips on the side. I said, if he just eats chips, I don't care. He's having the burger. So anyway, he looked at the burger and said, I'm not eating that. And Jasper, my husband, was ready to lose it at him. And I said, don't say anything. So Hamish got up. He left the table. About probably two or three minutes later, William, Jasper, and I were all still eating our burger. He came back, sat at the table, looked at the burger again. And you could see his little mind thinking, hmm. Anyway, then he left the table again, came back. The third time he came back, he sat and ate about four bites of the burger and all the chips. And I was stoked. And you know what? He's eaten a burger every time since. Whereas you think if I had said to him, yeah. you must eat that burger, sit there and put it in your mouth, automatically he would have thought, oh, wait, this is something I don't want to do. I don't like it. So it's really important to just try and take a deep breath, maybe have a sip of wine if it's dinner time. Yes, and regulate um, yourself yeah, first. Try and just, just relax. It's not, and it's not personal for yeah. your cooking. It's just little yeah. people want to decide yeah. when they eat, how they eat. Yeah. And, that's, yeah. and we always say to families, they're not going to not eat. Like they will eventually eat. Like they're not going to starve themselves. Well, some children will actually, <laughs> yeah. but that's a whole other uh, issue. But usually it's those children who have, you know, they're underweight, they have yep. reflux and there's something else going on. Yep. Um, but that is a big myth that children will right. not starve themselves to death if they have medical or like yeah. complex medical needs. Yeah. Um, but, but most typically developing children who are eating, you know, they, they will eat eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So if we have families who are stuck and they want some advice on where to go, um, sometimes that can be a little overwhelming in itself. Um, yeah. Do they go to a GP and get a referral? Can they go straight to a... And it can be hard too because that acknowledgement with your children that maybe something isn't quite right, maybe we need some support with something, what do we do? It's really important, to, I always think, to take the step and make an appointment because then you know one way or the other and you can do something proactive to support your child's communication, you know, speech, language, or even OT, you know, any allied health, whatever the issue might be, you've taken a proactive step to find out how you can support your child to improve on the skills that they have. Um, so to see an allied health, so speech, occupational therapist and physio, um, you don't need a GP referral. You can go to the GP to get what's called an enhanced primary care plan, which gives you five sessions with a Medicare rebate, um, or it might be called a chronic disease management plan. They change it every few years. But if you go see a GP, you can get them to write a letter so that you get some Medicare rebate because obviously it is expensive seeing speech pathology, you know, OT and physio. You can get it on your private health, but usually they sort of cap off at a limit. So a lot of speech pathologists, I guess there's the public health services. They, they do have a couple of years wait list at the moment. You know, you can see your local child development service and book in there and they'll, you'll see a speech pathologist who'll give you a screening 
and some some advice um, depending on what your your area is. Then obviously you can call up a private therapist. Some private therapists with smaller practices, so like me, would you'd actually call and speak to me. So I'm always happy to have a ten minute chat because sometimes too you get parents who call, and it's not something I I would often say you know tell me about it. I think you could probably call me in three months and I would be, you know, trying to do this, this and this and look for this. You know, if you're really worried, I'm more than happy to see you. But otherwise, you know, make an appointment in three months' time and you can always cancel it or just put on your fridge, you know, and here's what you'd be looking for in that time. So lots of smaller private practices, um, you know, without the admin person, you can just call up and speak. I know I've got a couple of friends who run private practices as well and we're all the same. You can call up for for a quick chat and... um, you know, and then depending too, I guess, on on what you're looking for, you know, do you want an assessment and to know what's wrong? Do you want to just come in for a session for 45 minutes, have someone eyes on your child, let you know if there's a few little things you can do to really support or boost their language development and then come back for a review session, um, you know, or if it's speech sounds, do you just want someone to say, oh, those speech sounds are age appropriate and developmentally normal, you know, and they're developing beautifully if you're still worried in 12 months, come back sort of thing. So it depends what you're looking for. But, yeah, I think always just engage a therapist, a therapist that you feel comfortable with. You know, a phone chat is a good way to see if they're someone who you could see yourself getting along with and becoming, you know, a partner in therapy because speech pathology is really a partnership. You know, you can't go and see someone and have them fix a language or speech problem. You are going to need to, to do some work at home because you're the ones who are with the children all the time. So, yeah, important to remember that, yeah, you're looking for someone who you can work with and who you think will support your family to get where you need to be. Do you, uh, Are there any significant implications for not addressing certain speech issues? Like I used to work for Ed Queensland and with additional needs children and I would quite often get children in grade five and six who still had significant speech issues. Yeah. We do say, yeah, early intervention, getting onto things early is is the best way because sometimes too those speech sound errors, if they're significant, can come across when children, you know, start prep and then in their literacy. So as they're acquiring literacy, they'll be writing thumb as fum because that's how they sound it out. Um, so sometimes those errors, you know, those little issues can then become bigger issues, you know, whereas if you've seen someone earlier that can, can nip that in the bud and then as well they can have a quick screen before prep of their literacy skills and say, oh, they don't have the sort of what we call metalinguistic or pre-literacy skills that I would expect them to have. Let's just do a little bit of work on that so that when they go to prep they're really ready to sit in the classroom to learn and to be, you know, just just ready to go. Yeah. Would you recommend for people to do a pre-prep screening for speech? Yeah. Well, if you can get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know. The wait list is so long. I was um, talking to a friend today and she was saying she's got 200 children on her wait list at the moment just at Morningside. Yeah, so if you can get into one. Lots of speech pathologists do offer to come. I know a few years ago I came into daycare, yeah, and do a a quick screening. You know, they take 15 minutes, cost you about $50. They're not super expensive but it can be a good like tick and flick I haven't seen any significant concerns but again I guess at that same time it's a tick and flick it's not a if you did have a child that you thought oh I'm actually really concerned about my child I would probably just go straight for a speech pathology assessment um because again it's sort of a 15 minutes eyes on quick tick and flick yeah 
Well, that's fantastic, Claire. That's a lot of great, great information. I guess, do you have any last sage words of advice for families? Yeah, I think it's important for parents to feel like they're all doing a great job (laughs) and the best job that they can. And if you are concerned about your child, you know, the best thing you can do is go see your GP, call a speech pathologist, call the OT, call a physio, you know, take that step. Um, You know, don't put your head in the sand and hope it gets better engage someone, someone who you trust, someone who you you sort of make a connection with on the phone and find out what you can do to support your child to get where they need need to be or, you know, to help support them language development. Yeah, I think that's that's really the main message to, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Claire. And as I said, we'll include some shameless plugging for you in our our notes for the show. Thanks, Um, Zoe. So it's been wonderful having you. And thank you for joining us, everyone. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Adiona Podcast. Be sure to subscribe for more fascinating insights into the early childhood development process. And don't forget to rate and review the show so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode of the Adiona Podcast.